On the comics page of the Burlington Times News this last week, there was a little cartoon uh, called The Born Loser. I'm sure none of you ever read anything like this, but I read it and I, I cut it out. I've got it here today. Uh, his wife says, Brutus, are you trying to sneak a bite of chocolate cake I made for dinner? And he says, no, I'm trying not to. And I thought, you know, that's more profound than the author of that cartoon probably realizes. Because that's a good description of the difference that Christ makes in lives. It's a different attitude towards sin. It's not that Christians don't sin. We do. But Christians are trying not to. And those who are unconverted are trying trying to find ways to do it. Trying to find ways to do it without getting caught. Trying to find ways to do it without paying all of the consequences, but nevertheless, their hearts are scheming to devise ways how they can sin, whereas Christians who know that they still struggle with the power and temptation of sin are endeavoring to find ways to avoid it. That's the difference. That's the difference right there. And Peter is actually dealing, I think, with that very same difference in our text for today in First Peter chapter 4, verses 3, 4, and 5. He says, for we have spent enough of our past life in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And in these three verses, we have a glance at things past, at things present, and things future. And Peter begins by describing what we might call our shameful past. And here is an acknowledgement of a formerly sinful lifestyle by those who received this epistle from Peter. He says, For we spent enough of our past time in doing the will of the Gentiles. We spent enough of our past time in doing the will of the Gentiles. And that is actually in stark contrast with the statement in verse 2 about our present desire to live the rest of our days to the will of God. That he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For, and here's the way it used to be, we have spent enough time in our past, or enough, enough of our past life in doing the will of the Gentiles. So we've already lived too many days, contrary to the will of God, is what Peter is saying. Undoubtedly, that's a bit of an understatement, a deliberate understatement on the part of Peter. It may even be a mild statement of sarcasm, because, of course, one day, one hour spent in sin is too much. And so we have spent, if we've, spent, if we've ever sinned, we've spent too much time, too much of our energies and resources were given to sin because any time spent in sin is too much. However, even our sinful experiences are used by a gracious God to teach us the folly of sin and the emptiness of it and the, and the consequences of it and the bitterness of it. Would to God that we should all learn those lessons and cause that to have our hearts reach out to Christ for his salvation before it's too late. 
But what Peter is telling us is that conversion is a radical change, both of our desires as well as our behavior. And he's telling us, therefore, that a changed life is an essential mark of salvation. There was a former life. There is a present life. There was a time past, and it's characterized by excessive sinfulness. There is a present life, and that is very different from the one that we lived before we were saved. Now, there are some implications of Peter's statement here. When he says, we have spent enough time in our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. The will of the Gentiles. Now, first place, this certainly tells us that Peter's readers were ethnically Gentiles and not Jews. You wouldn't say, writing to a bunch of Jews, that you spent your former life doing the will of the Gentiles. You lived in idolatry and so forth, as he goes on to mention here. So this is further evidence that Peter's recipients are Gentiles, not Jews, in spite of the fact that he uses language that some have taken to mean that perhaps his readers are Jews, but they're not. Furthermore, this tells us that most of the recipients of this epistle have been saved as adults, not children. They had reached adulthood, they had grown up in their culture and their customs, in their false religion, and in their profligate lifestyle, which was common in their community. And then the gospel came to them, and they were saved out of all of that, and their lives were changed. It's interesting that Peter designates their unsaved neighbors as Gentiles who continue to live the way that Peter's readers used to live. They are continuing to do the will of the Gentiles as opposed to the will of God. The will of the Gentiles. In other words, they are pursuing the desires of unconverted people. Gentiles. Not in contrast to Jews, Peter is not contrasting ethnic Gentiles to ethnic Jews, because again, remember, the people he's writing to formerly were these very same Gentiles. But he is taking that that figure of speech, he's, he's taking that term that has a very real connotation, and he's turning it into a figure of speech. And now, instead of talking about Jews and Gentiles, ethnically speaking, as would have been common throughout the Old Testament scriptures, he is recognizing that in the Old Testament scriptures we could call the Jews the people of God and the Gentiles those who are not the people of God. Well, now with the New Covenant, though the people of God embrace both Jews and Gentiles, we can still borrow the same language And we can talk about the people of God on the one hand and Gentiles, that is, those who are not the people of God, on the other hand, those who are outside of Christ. And so he's speaking figuratively of those who are without Christ in this world. And that in spite, I say, of some of the language that he has used that some have thought meant he was writing to Jews, as, for example, in the opening of the epistle. When he writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. That might be thought to be Jews who are dispersed throughout the world. But very clearly from the passage before us today, that's not what Peter means. 
The pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He's talking about ethnic Gentiles who've been saved by the grace of God, and now they are the people of God. We don't call them Gentiles. They are spiritual Israel, actually, but they're the people of God. And now as the people of God, saved out of every tongue and tribe and nation throughout the world, they are very much pilgrims. They're strangers in a foreign land. They're scattered throughout this world, which is predominantly inhabited by those who do not know the Lord. That's why Peter used this kind of language in chapter 2 when he said in verse 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. You hear these phrases that he's borrowing from the Old Testament and applying to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? A holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people. That's a designation of Gentiles in the Old Testament. But are now the people of God. That's a designation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. Who had not obtained mercy, Gentiles, but now have obtained mercy, church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that kind of language. And he goes on and makes an appeal in chapter 2, very similar to the one in our text for today. He says in verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. So there's first of all this acknowledgement of a formerly sinful lifestyle by the readers that Peter is writing to. And then there is secondly an enumeration of fleshly lusts. If you are wondering now exactly what does Peter mean by the will of the Gentiles as opposed to the will of God, and what kind of a lifestyle is he talking about here that he's contrasting with the lifestyle of God's people? Well, here it is enumerated in verse 3, when you walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. There's a a partial list, a partial enumeration of fleshly lusts. All of these, and there's six here, and all of them in the original language are plural nouns. And that speaks of the variety of each one of these. They have different manifestations. It speaks of the frequency with which these sins are repeated by those who are living apart from Christ. Three of them have sexual overtones, either are blatantly referring to sexual immorality or are implying that very strongly. Two have to do with alcohol, the abuse of alcohol, and one has to do with false religion. There are many lists that are similar to this in the New Testament of various kinds, Here's a short one in Romans 13:13, 13, 13, where Paul says, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. And perhaps the more familiar one, preceding the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, we have this list of the works of the flesh. Verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are, 
adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is a difference between the people of God and those who are unconverted. And the difference is more than just simply having your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life in heaven. This makes a profound change in your activities, in your behaviors, in your desires, in your delights. It's all changed. Things are different now. Something happened to me when I gave my heart to Jesus. Six enumerations of fleshly lust given to us by Peter. Number one, lewdness. In some translations, that's called debauchery or licentiousness or lasciviousness. This means multiple acts of unbridled lust. It means acting without moral restraint, just doing what you want to do, doing what you feel like doing without any regard to the law of God or to the consequences. The second word is lusts, passions, strong desires. It's a Greek word that on three or four occasions has a meaning of good desires. But numerous times, dozens of times, most of the time, it carries with it the idea of sexual desires, the way we generally use that word in the English today, lusts. And that's the way it's used here, of sexual immorality, or at least desire for sexual immorality. Sinful desires which strongly influence behavior. The desire to be immoral, even If you're not immoral, the desire to be immoral, even if you don't have opportunity to be immoral, even if there are certain restraints or certain fears of consequences which hold you back from it, but that's the only thing that holds you back. Your heart desire is to do it if you could. If you could get by with it without being known, that's what you do. That's lust. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, that you have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if a man looks upon a woman for the purpose of lusting after her, he's committed adultery already in his heart. Lusts. Third, drunkenness. Wine bubbling up is the literal rendering. Overflowing with wine. Drunkenness and repeated drunkenness. Drunkenness is. Number four, revelries. Sometimes translated carousing. Or in one translation, orgies. Wild parties is the idea. Often in Peter's day, these were festivities in honor of a pagan god, such as Bacchus, the god of wine, or other Greek or Roman gods in which people would come together and have festivities and drink until they were drunk and then often spill out into the street and parade up and down the streets looking for other opportunities for sinful excitement, whatever presented itself, whatever they could find, out parading up and down the streets. 
That's revelries. Number five, drinking parties. Carousing, again. A drinking party designed to get drunk. An occasion where people come together and the idea is we are coming together because we plan to get drunk. We all know that. We've designed it for that. We do it together because it's more fun together. We do it together because there's maybe less reproach if we do it together. We're all doing it the same way, so so uh, who's to reproach us if we all do it? And we do it together because we are hoping that other things will flow out of it. After we all get drunk, we hope this will lead on to other things as well. And so drinking parties. And then number six, abominable idolatries. Abominable idolatries. And Peter now deals with something that many people would not perhaps have thought of as nearly as sinful, not, not quite of the same category as immoralities and drunkenness. You're just talking here about, about religion, aren't you, Peter? The religion that was common in the day in which Peter wrote that most people uh, were involved with was some kind of idolatrous religion. Most of them had many gods and many idols. And most of them had at least one patron god that they kept in their home, an idol, and others that they worshipped. There usually was a particularly favored god that was more or less the patron god of each town and community, and there would generally be a temple to that particular god. But, of course, there were other gods, and most people worshipped many of the gods, the idols of that day. All in contradiction to the command of God that we not have other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I am the Lord your God. And what we need to understand is that false religion is idolatry with or without idols, with or without carved statues. Because a a carved statue is actually depicting a god. Most people don't think that the carved statue is actually the god, though that pictures it for them and gives them a focus, an object to focus upon when they worship. But that carving depicts... A God, a God of certain description, certain character, like Bacchus, the God of wine. And there were many gods in the Roman world, the God of rain and the God of safety when you travel, and this God and that God, the God of of, uh, fertility. That was one that was often worshipped in these orgies. And so this idol just simply pictures a... Uh, a mental concept of a God. You can do away with the idol and still have a mental concept of God, which is contrary to the revelation of himself that God has given us in the Bible. And if the God that you worship, the God that you have constructed in your mind, is different from the God of the Bible, then that's false worship. That's false religion. And that's mental idolatry. And so, abominable idolatries. Abominable means lawless, lawless idolatries. Lawless, not only because false worship violates 
God's law not to worship any other gods. But it is that false worship often encourages other areas of transgression, such as immorality and drunkenness. That's what was going on in Peter's day. It was the pagan religions of the unconverted Gentiles that encouraged them in their immorality and drunkenness. They did this often in connection with their worship of their gods. Lawless idolatries. And the fact is that false worship, false religion, is often a cover for sinful indulgence. Corruptions of the Christian religion are often a cover for sinful indulgence. It doesn't have to be a pagan religion. And that means that false religion is not the least sinful of the six on the list. It's actually the most sinful of the six on the list. Because it is false worship that encourages us to the other sins. It is worshiping a God other than the Bible that lifts the restraints for other sins. It is fashioning a God of our own imagination who does not prohibit adultery, who does not prohibit drunkenness, who does not prohibit other sins that causes us to lower the restraints of our God-given conscience where we know by the Law of God that's been implanted into our hearts that these things are sinful. But you see, false religion often encourages sinful indulgence. And therefore, false religion is even more sinful than the others, and it's more dangerous than you can possibly imagine. And all six of these mark the unconverted. Listen to another list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 from the Apostle Paul. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. What part of that statement do you not understand? It's very plain. Paul goes on to say, but such were some of you. He's writing to people like Peter is, who formerly were engaged in these very sins and have now been saved from them, saved by grace, and their hearts have been changed. And they no longer live this way. And that's a mark of their conversion. They have been changed by the grace of God. But those who profess Christ but continue on unchanged do not know Christ and don't be deceived. Those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And Peter's telling us the same thing. And so Peter speaks, first of all, about our shameful past in verse 3. But he talks, secondly, about our challenging present in verse 4. Because those who have been changed by the grace of God have the challenge of living in a world where most of those around them have not been changed by the grace of God. And so we read in verse 4, in regard to these things, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. And what is the challenge for Christians in the present? 
When we look at our past, we see that we used to be just like that too. We were, we acted like our unsaved neighbors because we were like our unsaved neighbors, unsaved, unconverted, unchanged by the grace of God. Now God and His grace has come to us and has changed us. And so what's our challenge? Well, our challenge, first of all, is to remain distinctly different from the world around us. That's very important. And our challenge, number two, is to suffer reproach for the cross of Christ because we are living different from the world around us. The very life given to follow the will of God, a desire that is created within us by the Spirit of God, and we are born again by the Spirit of God, that desire to please God, to do His will, is also going to target us for special antagonism by others, and we better be prepared for that. If we aren't prepared for that, we may not stand up to it very well. But this is the challenge of the present hour, to live like a Christian in the midst of people who are not living like Christians. And in our day, our culture, many of whom even profess to be Christians. Peter didn't have that situation because Christianity was new in his day. But Christianity has been around for centuries in our country. And so our challenge is to live like Christians in a world of people who aren't living like Christians, some of whom even claim to be Christians. That's our challenging present. And Peter describes this distinction in three phrases. Number one, they think it's strange. Number two, that you do not run with them. And number three, in the same flood of dissipation. They think it's strange. They're astonished. Your neighbors are well aware of your change of life. Are your neighbors aware of yours? Because Peter indicates that for his readers, their neighbors were well aware of the change that took place in their lives. This is the way you used to be. You're not that way anymore, say your neighbors. And they don't understand why. They think it's strange. They do not understand it. Why? Because they don't have a changed heart. They don't have a changed mind. They don't have new thought patterns. They don't have new desires. They don't have new delights. They're still thinking like you used to think. They're thinking the only way they know how to think And from that mindset, your changed behavior seems very odd, very strange indeed. And furthermore, they resent this interruption in the status quo. Why, you all used to do these things together. You all used to party together. You all used to get drunk together. You all used to to, uh, dabble in immorality together, and it was a, a big joke that everybody... Uh, everybody was in on the joke. Everybody did it together. Wasn't that delightful? Rah, rah, rah. And now you don't do it anymore. And that has messed up the party to some extent. They think it's strange that you do not run with them. That you do not stampede to seek the pleasures that they seek. That you are not involved in that never-ending chase after happiness which they have given their lives to. They haven't achieved it yet, but they don't know how 
to change because they don't have any different goals or desires. Their heart is bent in a certain direction. That's all they know. That's the only thing they can imagine that could possibly give them any happiness. And so their whole life is spent in stampeding for that elusive happiness that never materializes. And you're not doing that? Boy, you sure are odd. That you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, the same overflowing, the same pouring out of dissipation. Dissipation means wasted resources and energies. That's the same root word that's used of the prodigal son in Luke 15, 13. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Wasted his possessions with prodigal living. The old King James says, I think, with riotous living. That's the word here. Dissipation. A flood of dissipation. And that's the way it is with so many in the world. Not, Not everybody in the world fits this description perfectly, but that's the way it is with so many in the world. Seeking after sinful pleasures, willing to spend their money, willing to spend their energies, wasting money, wasting energies. No cost is too great to grab after this elusive happiness. We Another round, another party, another time to get drunk, and another time to chase another skirt, whoopee. We'll spend anything to do that, and it's all a waste. It's to no avail, and it's even worse than a waste because it's just leading you closer and closer to eternal damnation. So our challenge in the present is, number one, to be distinctly different from the world around us in a way that they will recognize a difference, but that doesn't always cause them to fall down in conviction and seek Christ as we'd like for them to, and sometimes we are wrongly given the impression it's going to happen. But what happens more often, occasionally that does happen, thank God, because the Spirit of God goes to work, and He can and does use our testimony in that very way. And Peter told us that earlier in this epistle, you may recall. And sometimes God will use our changed life as the catalyst that will bring others to conviction and to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there is another result that probably is more common. And that's the one that Peter describes here, speaking evil of you. You're going to have to take reproach for your testimony for Christ. Speaking evil of you, heaping abuse upon you. What are they going to do? This is a campaign of insults and slander born out of ill will toward you. They will malign you. They will defame you. They will seek to injure your reputation. And these were my friends for years. So much for the friendship of the world. But friends like that, who needs enemies? And why do they do this? Well, it's because your non-participation in their sin implies condemnation. You don't even have to say that's wrong. Just don't join them anymore. And your non-participation feels to them like you are wagging a finger of rebuke in their face and saying, don't do that, that's wrong. You don't have to say a word. Your non-participation pricks their conscience. 
Your non-participation now makes them feel the need to justify their sin. Before, everybody was doing it, so it was easier to just do it without justifying it. Whatever, whatever uh, distant pangs of conscience were rising up within them by their God-given conscience were easily stifled because, after all, I'm just doing what everybody else is doing. Everybody does this. But now you don't. You're their neighbors. You live in the same community. You work in the same places. You shop in the same stores. You send your kids to the same schools. You are living right there in the same community. And they know you. And you know them. But you don't do this anymore. And that non-participation pricks their conscience. And now they feel the need to justify their sin. They think of you as a goody-two-shoes. They think you're condemning them. They feel now that they have to marshal excuses and justifications and reasons why it's all right to live this way. You have really upset the apple cart. And that's why they're speaking well of you. And how are they going to, going to malign you? Well, they're going to call you abnormal. You're odd. And you are, to their way of looking at things. You're actually more normal than you've ever been in all your life. You're now rightly related to your Creator, able to understand Him, able to think right, able to go happily through life sober. That's normal. But to somebody who's lived their whole life in abnormality, that seems very abnormal, very odd. You're a weirdo. They're going to they're call you names that indicate they think you are abnormal. And they're going to have so many other ways to, um, to let people know that they don't approve of you. They're going to call you antisocial. You used to socialize with them. You don't do that now. You're antisocial. They may even call you unpatriotic because, of course, the worship of these gods were all community gods. They were, they were city gods. They were state gods. They were national gods. This, this was the religion of, of our nation. We're citizens of this nation. You don't do this anymore. You're unpatriotic. That stings. And on it goes. You're dangerous to the community. You see, if we don't worship these gods, then ill fortune's going to fall on us. We, we have to sacrifice to these gods. We have to sacrifice to the rain god or we won't get rain. We have to sacrifice to the god of safety and travel or we'll have accidents. We, we have to sacrifice to the god of war or we'll, we'll lose our battles and our enemies will rise over us. You're not participating in this anymore. You're not only unpatriotic, but you're downright dangerous to our community. We need to get rid of people like you. Do, do we feel a sentiment beginning to rise like that against Christians in America today? You see, America that used to be sort of a Christian nation is now becoming more of a pagan nation, no matter what people want to think of themselves as. But the mindset has changed very much. And now real Christians who live for the Lord are thought to be very weird, very odd, very antisocial, and yes, maybe even dangerous to society. Now that's not easy to take, is it? And we thought when we got saved and started living right, the world would be impressed and they would applaud and they would fall down in conviction and they would seek our Savior. And instead, they hurl insults at us and abuse us and try to, to marginalize us and would get rid of us if they could. 
Well, that has a way of hurting our self-esteem, doesn't it? Here we are. We know we're better citizens than we were before. And our neighbors think we're worse. We know that we're more productive citizens, harder workers, conduct ourselves with honesty and integrity, that we're better for the community, for our society, than we ever were before. And our neighbors think that we're a threat, that we're a danger to our community. How do we respond to that? Does that make us mad? Or does that just humble us to realize that Christ has saved us out of our sinful past and to have compassion upon our neighbors that they need the same grace of God and to pray fervently that God will extend that same grace to them. We're not any better than them because of us. We're only different because of the grace of God. That's unmerited favor. He has done a great favor for us that we didn't deserve. Oh, that God in His boundless love and infinite mercy would extend that same favor to our friends and neighbors, our relatives as well. That should be our attitude and will be in time. And don't forget, this is the way they treated Christ, remember? Why should we be be surprised at all of this? Remember what Jesus said? Here's one occasion, Matthew or John 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are, were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. I take that to mean to the extent that they kept my word, to the same extent they'll keep yours. To what extent did they keep Christ's word? Only a little. Some did. But most didn't. To what extent are they going to listen to us and think we have something valuable to say? To what extent are they going to appreciate what we have to say? To the same extent they appreciated what Christ had to say. Only a little. But most won't. That's just part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what it means. This is part of the package. This is the privilege to bear reproach for the cause of Christ. Don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice. What a privilege to bear the name of Christ. What a privilege to bear reproach for the sake of our Savior. That's the attitude. But then there is a glance at the future, and we'll just look at this briefly in verse 5. It says, They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And the future of the seekers of pleasure is here described. They will give an account to God, the holy, omniscient judge, who knows all things, who knows every heart, who knows every deed, who knows every sin, and who is totally righteous. And therefore, there will be condemnation and righteous retribution for those who give their lives to seeking sinful pleasure. You don't want to be where they will be on the day of judgment. You don't want to be there. But you will be if you desire what they desire. You will be if this describes your heart. 
You will be if your basic mindset is the same as that described here. That's where you'll be. What makes you think you'll be with the redeemed of God in that day if everything about your thinking describes those who are enemies of Christ? Now, our future, of course, is very different, and that's only by way of contrast and implication here. Peter's already dealt with the future of the people of God in chapter 1. And our glorious future because of grace is entirely different. And if we are in Christ, if grace has changed our hearts, if grace has changed our desires, if grace has changed our delights, in other words, if we have truly been born again, then we will stand robed in the righteousness of Christ before the judgment bar of God. And we will hear him say, no condemnation. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Welcome, good and faithful servant. Not because of who we are and what we've done, but because of who Christ is and what he has done. Now quickly, let me pursue a few lessons out of this text. I won't have time for them all. But the first one is the most obvious, and that has to do with salvation. And it's just a reminder that you aren't saved because you prayed a prayer. You're not saved because you profess to be saved. And you're, you're not saved if your only claim to, just, to salvation is that you have been justified before the judgment bar of God only. But there is no change in your thinking, no change in your heart's desires. You're not saved. You're fooling yourself. Don't be deceived. Salvation is a changed life. Salvation is a changed mind. Salvation brings different desires and different delights. Salvation ushers forth from the fruit of repentance. You say, what is repentance? A change of mind. Well, change of mind of what? Towards your sin. That's a good description of it here. Repentance is being brought by the Spirit of God to the place where these things and many more that used to delight you, now they have come to disturb you and you don't delight in them anymore and you are ashamed of your participation in them. You have changed your mind concerning them. You have repented. That's the fruit of the new birth. It is sanctification, the transforming holiness that comes with salvation. If you have been saved, you have been transformed. If you haven't been transformed, you have not yet been saved. And the quicker you acknowledge that, so that you can go to Christ and acknowledge that you need to be saved, the sooner you will be saved. But as long as you stubbornly go on saying, I've been saved, I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I I raised my hand, I know I'm saved, I made a profession. What does that prove? Many have done that and gone to hell. Have you been born again by the Spirit of God? Have you? A second lesson has to do with the children of Christian parents. This needs to be discussed in more detail than I can give to it now. But sometimes the children of Christian parents who grew up in Christian families and grew up in the church struggle because they don't have this kind of lifestyle change, because they didn't grow up in paganism with with parents who pursued this kind of sinfulness, these kind of desires and delights. And so and they were they were guarded from those things, kept from them by loving and attentive parents who made sure that they didn't get into these things easily. 
And so sometimes children of Christian parents struggle with this question of salvation. I hear people talking about the great difference that Christ makes, but I don't see that great difference in my situation. What is different for me so that I can know whether I've been saved or not? That's a good question. And you need to thank God in His goodness for having spared you so much of the sin and futility of life that has been the part of others. You Others who have spent enough of their past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. And if you've been spared from that, then thank God for it. You may not have experienced drunkenness ever and still be lost and on your way to hell. You may never have dabbled with drugs and yet still have an unregenerate heart and be on your way to hell. You may never have been guilty of fornication and yet still be unconverted. You may never have had to come out of a false religion to the truth of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ like these people did. And yet, just because you grew up in Christianity and have a knowledge of all of these things and would would readily give lip service to your faith in these things doesn't mean necessarily that you've been born again, does it? But it is more difficult to document your conversion. You don't have this this, uh, dramatic testimony. I used to get drunk, and I used to be involved in wild parties, and I used to pursue sin to the full. And then one day God saved me, and everything's changed. Things are different now. Glory, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And you grew up in a Christian home, and you say, I can't say that. Thank God. Well, you need to understand that even though some of these circumstances are different, that basically there is no difference You have the same sinful condition, the same unconverted heart. You are a fallen son or daughter of Adam, just like everybody who's born into this world. And it expresses itself in rebellion against God, against his will. You see, that's really the the crux of the matter here, the will of God. Verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. That describes The converted person. 4 verse 3, we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. That is the will of unconverted people. The desires of the flesh. Now, it may be that because of your upbringing, you haven't pursued the same dregs of sin that others have. But there's still this basic rebellion against God, against His Word, against His authority, against His law against his ways. It's there. We all have that. And that's your sinful condition. And the question, therefore, is, has anything changed in that regard? Does that describe you, or do you now have a heart of faith? Does that describe you, or do you have skepticism and lack of appreciation for the things of God? Do you have a desire to please Christ? Or is it your desire to get as far away from your parents and the church and Christian influence as you can so you can do these things that your heart really wants to do and you hope they won't know? I'm trying to help you. Because some of you, I fear, believe yourself to be ready to meet the Lord. And yet the indications are that you're not. trying to help you. 
This, by the way, is why we advocate adult baptism. It's not that we don't believe children can be saved. We know they can. But sometimes it's hard to tell until they've had a chance to get old enough where they can get out from under the rules, the regulations, the restraints, and demonstrate what their real heart desire is, how they want to live when when they are able to live on their own. Now, now, does your life demonstrate a desire to please the Lord, to do His will? Are you a follower of Christ under those conditions? Then no doubt, if you are, how did that happen? That's not because of you. That's because of grace. That's what Christ has done. That's, that's evidence that you have been born again. That's evidence that Christ has changed your life. And by all means, step forward and say so. I am a Christian. I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Take your place in the church, the visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And lend your strength and energies in cooperation with other Christians in order to advance the cause of Christ. Take your part in the body of Christ. Live like a Christian. Make your life count for Christ. But don't be a hypocrite. Because you'll harm others and you'll deceive your own soul. If you profess among Christians that you're a Christian, but when you get away from Christians, when you're with the other crowd, then you know... You know how you really are and what your delights really are and what you really want to do and the people you really want to be with. It's the description of the Gentiles here. Well, time fails me to talk about the dangers of alcohol. I'll do that another time and some other things. But we will conclude now in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for showing us your word and showing us your son and dealing with us so helpfully. Help us, O Lord, to know our own hearts, that we do not march unknowingly to the very brink of hell. And then when this life is over, find ourselves outside of Christ saying, Lord, Lord, we, we profess to know you and to hear him say, Depart from me, workers of iniquity, I never knew you. By your Spirit, O Lord, claim souls, claim lives in this building today, lives for whom Christ died. Change them by your grace, we pray. Amen.